morning, everyone. It's so good to see all of you today. My name is Ricky. If you're a first-time guest with us, we are glad that you're here. And uh, I'd love to meet you at the end of our service. I'll be at the back where it says, what is your next step? And I would love to just personally put a name with a face. And thank you for being with us today. And here at Fort Caroline, we, we teach in series of messages. So we'll take a topic, for example, or we'll take a book of the Bible, or we'll take a passage of Scripture, or we'll take a character from the Bible, and we'll spend a few weeks uh, studying that, looking at that. And we are in this series called The Story of David. We're looking at that shepherd boy who became the king of Israel. Uh, we know him as King David from the Old Testament. And today's message is a little different than normal. Uh, today's message is on a very difficult subject to speak about and a very sensitive subject. We're talking today about an incident in the life of one of David's daughters who was raped by her brother. And any time that we talk about sexual abuse or assault, it is a very hard conversation to have. In fact, I wanted to kind of give you that heads up because I know that this may be difficult to hear if you've been the victim. And then I also wanted to let you know, in case your kids are in our church service this morning, that this is a PG-13, but it may cause some questions that you have to answer on the way home, or you can take advantage of our great child care next door. They have a great time there, and I promise you, they're not talking about what we're talking about uh, today. And it's important for us to talk about this. You know, it would be easy and convenient to just skip over this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 13, in this series about David, because it, it's uncomfortable, it's painful to read. And on a personal level, it's hard for me to speak today about this topic because when I'm reading about Tamar's story, I also have many faces in my mind of people that I know and love who this is really similar to their story as well. For example, I remember talking to a, a lady many years ago and uh, we were just on the phone together talking and about something and I said, well, I look forward to seeing you Sunday. And that next Sunday happened to be Mother's Day. And she said, oh, no, no, you won't see me. And I said, oh, okay, I, I thought I'd see you at church. She said, I'm going to tell you something I've never told anyone. I do not go to church on Mother's Day. When I was a child, I was sexually abused by my father. And when I told my mother, she did not believe me. I don't go to church on Mother's Day. Then a few years ago, I met a, a young man that attended our church for the first time on a Sunday morning, and uh, we met before the service, and then after the service, he came by, and I shook his hand, and, and I said, man, I'm so glad you're here today. I'd love to take you to coffee one day, just get to know you, let you know more about our church if you have any questions or how we can serve you. And he said, you would go to coffee with me? I said, yeah, sure. Yeah, I would. Why wouldn't I? And he said, I wasn't expecting that from a pastor. This is the first church I've been in since I was a child. So a few weeks later, we met at Starbucks on Gervin, and he told me his story, that he was sexually abused as a child by a family member. And when he told his parents, his parents did not believe him. They said he was lying. And they told him he ought to be ashamed of himself. And they took him to their church. And the pastor confronted him about his lying. And he said, from that day forward, I never went to a church when I became a teenager. I got into a lifestyle of drugs and alcohol and sexual immorality and... Attempted suicide about a year ago, ended up at your Celebrate Recovery because people said you need to get some support after you finish the program. He said, I don't believe in God and all this stuff in the Bible, but they were so nice to me, they kept telling me to come to church. So I came to church. And it's the first church I've ever been in because my experience was not good. 
And so as I think about Tamar's story, I realize it's not just her story. It's many people's story. Every 92 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. On average, there are over 300,000 sexual assault victims 12 years old and up in this country. One out of six American women have been the victim of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. Younger people and children are the most vulnerable among us. They're the highest risk of sexual abuse. And even men and boys can be victimized by those who would seek to assault them. In fact, one out of every ten rape victims are male. This is not just Tamar's story. It's many people's story. And so often we come to a passage like this and we say, let's just skip over it because it's uncomfortable to talk about it on the Sunday morning. And I think it sends a signal to someone who's been victimized that, yeah, we can't talk about your story. We, that's not comfortable for us. And you make us uncomfortable and uh, we're just going to skip over that. The scripture does not skip over it. For some reason, the writer of the book of 2 Samuel, probably one of many writers, but the writer of 2 Samuel includes this story. And he doesn't just include this story about the life of David. He includes it in excruciating detail. He could have just given us a, just a, a small notation and kept moving, but he gives us some very difficult, painful details. And I think he did it for a reason. So what I want to do in our time together, I'm not really going to preach to you. And, and if you're a guest here today, I hope you will come back because uh, today's just a difficult subject. But it says to you, I hope of something about our church. We care about people. And we're not going to let this person, whoever it might be, who is hurting, to feel that we don't care because we do. But it may be uncomfortable. So I want to deal with you and just show some, some symptoms of people, some characteristics of people who were sexually abusive. But I want to end our time today by giving you some hope and some steps for application. And so I want you to hang in there with me today. I want you to see, first of all, that sexual abuse can happen in any family or organization. One of the great myths about this problem is that it couldn't happen in our family. That happens in other families. That could never happen to me. That could never happen to any of my family members. That happens in different kinds of families. That happens in poorer families. That happens in, in families of different race or ethnicity. Or, or that happens in people that live in a different part of the world than we do. That doesn't happen, couldn't happen to me or my family. Or that could never happen in our church. That could never happen in our company. That could never happen to someone in the military. That could never happen to someone in this school. And that's wrong. It's, it's just a myth. Because sexual abuse can happen in any family or organization. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. This is what we read. Now, David's son, Absalom, had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. This is David's family. This is that shepherd boy who became the king of Israel. This is the one whom God says he is a man after my own heart. This is the slayer of giants. And if sexual abuse can happen in his family, in the royal family, it can happen to anyone. We live in a broken world and we are broken people. And sexual abuse can happen and does happen in all sorts of settings. 
Sexual assault does not discriminate by race, ethnicity, gender, religion, sexual orientation, or social segments. It can happen to any of us. The second observation I make from 2 Samuel 13 is sexual abuse is not love. It is described as love in our story today because that's how Amnon described it. Amnon thought he was in love. It was not. Sexual assault never has been, never will be love. It is lust. It is hate. It is perversion. It is violence. It is wrong. But it's not love. Even though someone may claim that it is love. Look at 2 Samuel 13 verse 2. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin and Amnon thought he could never have her. So he is so obsessed with his sister that he is physically and emotionally sick over the fact that his lust for her cannot be satiated. So she was a virgin and Amnon knew that he couldn't have her. That as one of the virgin daughters of David, that she was set apart from other people and other men. She was saving herself for marriage, probably an arranged marriage, between her and some other royal family in some other country. And Amnon thinks he is in love, but it's not love. Love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, is patient and kind and long-suffering. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love hopes all things and believes all things and endures all things. Love never fails. And what we're going to see in this story is anything but love. The third observation I would make is sexual abusers abuse the trust of others. One of the great commodities that a sexual abuser has at his disposal or her disposal is the trust that other people place in them. And they use that trust against the very people they're wanting to harm we see that in our story today. Verse 3, But Amnon had a very crafty friend, his cousin, Jonadab. He was the son of David's brother, Shimea. Verse 4, One day Jonadab said to Amnon, What's the trouble? Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? So Amnon told him, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Verse 5, Well, Jonadab said, I'll tell you what to do. Go back to bed and pretend you are ill. When your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she prepares it as you watch and feeds you with her own hands. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Amnon asked him, Please let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish as I watch. Then I can eat it from her own hands. Verse 7, so David agreed and sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. Do you see what Amnon is doing? Amnon is using the very trust his family has placed in them against them. It doesn't help matters that he has a cousin who is as wicked as he is. A cousin who should have said, this is absolutely wrong. What are you thinking like this? What are you, what are you talking about? This is absolutely against the word of God. Leviticus 18, 11, God explicitly said, you cannot have your sister. And by the way, everybody else knows you don't even need a Bible verse to know that's wrong. 
But instead, Jonadab, his cousin, enables him and encourages him in his sin. By the way, there are many people and many influences in our culture who seek to do the same thing. Rather than saying this lust and this obsession is wrong, they come along and encourage it. And here, I'll help you fulfill your fantasy and your desire. And Amnon knows that if he is sick, his father David is going to be concerned for him. Amnon is his oldest son, and Amnon is the next in line to the throne. So King David will want to make sure that his son is healthy and can take the throne one day and lead the kingdom one day. So he's going to come and see Amnon when he's sick. And Amnon can take advantage of that trust and that parental care. And Amnon knows that Tamar is trusting of him. That Tamar is a good, godly young lady. She is living for God. She's obedient to her family, to her dad. She's trying to do all the right things. She's saving herself for marriage. And listen, if dad says, I need to go and take care of Amnon and cook some food for him, she's going to go. And Tamar thinks, if Amnon wants me to do this, I'm going to go and help him. Sexual abusers abuse the trust of others. I'm not saying that we ought to be paranoid. But I am saying we need to... Do like Ronald Reagan said about the Soviet Union. Trust, but verify. It's one of the reasons, one of the first things I did when I became your pastor 24 years ago is I implemented a background check policy for anyone who will serve in our church with our minor children. Starting from the pastor and paid staff all the way down to a volunteer, we were going to make sure that we trust people, but we verify that they're trustworthy. We also put windows in every single door in this church, in every single classroom. We implemented rules. No one adult with a child alone, always two or more adults. And I have preached to my pastor friends for, for 25 years this is not a secular problem. This is not a Catholic church problem. This is a humanity problem. And you better know that people are going to use the trust of a church against you. And they're going to take advantage of the most vulnerable in your church. I thank the Lord that this church had never had an issue and has never had an issue in our 40 years of ministry. But I can promise you this. We will not let our guard down. Because sexual abusers abuse the trust of others. It's why we have policies that from the first day of my ministry, my policy was as a pastor, I will never meet with a woman alone. Never have, never will. I don't ride in cars with women alone. Don't eat with women alone. Don't meet with minors by myself. Because I believe in integrity and transparency. Sexual abusers, however, abuse the trust of others. The fourth observation I'm going to make is sexual abusers use manipulation and force against their victims. Sexual abusers use manipulation and force against their victims. Verse 8, when Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down so he could watch her mix some dough. Then she baked his favorite dish for him. I don't know about you, but I love movies. And so when I'm reading the scriptures, I'm, I'm almost picturing this like a movie. And it's one of those scenes where I'm, I'm watching a horror show and I'm wanting to yell out to the person on the screen, don't go in there. <laughs> don't, don't, don't do that. And you want to yell out to Tamar, please don't go in there. But she does. Verse 9, but when... She set the serving tray before him. He refused to eat. 
Everyone get out of here, Amnon told his servants. So they all left. Then he said to Tamar, now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, my brother, she cried. Don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where can I go in my shame? And you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please, just speak to the king about it and he will let you marry me. It's a terrible tragedy. Do you see what Amnon is doing? He is using manipulation and force against his sister. He has manipulated her into his bedroom. He has used force to put his hands on her and to grab her and to hold her down. Seeking to force her to have sex with him. And she protests. She, she cries out to him, No, my brother. Don't be foolish. Don't do this. She says, This is wicked. It's wicked what you're doing. This is wrong. She even tells him, She says, Where can I go in my shame? This will destroy my life. And you'll be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. The word Nebal means fool. In, in the Hebrew it means one who just totally disregards God's will. And just rushes into whatever their flesh tells them they want. And she said you'll be the greatest fool in all Israel if you do this. Disregarding God. And just as God judged Nebal. You're going to die. You're going to be judged. If you do this. And then to show you how desperate Tamar is to get out of this situation, to just get away from him, she says, please just speak to the king about it. He'll let you marry me. She knew good and well that was forbidden by God for her brother to marry his sister. She knew David would never do it. All she's trying to do is get out. She'll say anything she has to say to just get out of the situation. And to me, one of the saddest verses in the Bible is verse 14. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. And since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Probably took just a few minutes, but in those few moments, Tamar's whole life was changed forever. She put up a good fight, but her pleas were ignored. And sexual abusers use manipulation and force to get their sordid way They'll use physical force, emotional blackmail, verbal threats, intimidation, promises, emotional manipulation, fear, shame, guilt. They'll use whatever it takes to abuse their victim and to get away with it. But it gets worse. The fifth observation, sexual abusers demean, blame, and shame their victims. They demean them. Blame them as if it's their fault. And shame them into silence and guilt. Verse 15, then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate. And he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. You see, this was never about love. You don't go from love one moment to hate the next. It was just unbridled lust. And now he's done with her. He doesn't want to see her anymore. 
Verse 16, no, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away now is worse than what you've already done to me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. Verse 17, he shouted for his servant and demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. In the Hebrew, it's a little questionable that he, he even uses the word woman. More than likely, he just says to his servants, get this out of here. Further dehumanizing her. Verse 18, so the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. She was wearing a long, beautiful robe, as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. The reason she says, if you send me away, is even worse than what you've done, is she was trying to convince him, if we don't tell dad what happened, if you don't make this right, I will live the rest of my life as a desolate woman, unmarried, no man will have me, and with no children. And no future. I will live for the rest of my life with this shame that follows me. But he doesn't care about her. He could care less about the consequences of what he's done. So he abandons her and kicks her out. Sixth observation. I've only got seven, by the way. The sixth observation. Sexual abuse victims are often shamed into silence. It's one of the great tactics that sometimes the abuser or the family will use. Verse 19, but now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head. And then with her face in her hands, she went away crying. That beautiful robe that signified her as one of the virgin daughters of the king of Israel. She now no longer feels dignified to wear. She rips it as a sign of her shame. She puts ashes on her face, which is in Israel's culture a sign of mourning, deep grief and mourning. And with her face in her hands, it was a symbol, it was a sign of someone who had been exiled and banished that they leave their past behind. She leaves crying, literally sobbing. Verse 20, her brother Absalom saw her and asked, is it true that Amnon has been with you? I don't know how he knew this. He saw her disheveled appearance. He saw the, the grief on her face. But he probably also harbored some suspicions about his brother. And he put two and two together. Or maybe there's a little bit of gossip in the palace. And word has reached Absalom from one of the servants who heard everything, saw everything. Is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, keep quiet for now, since he's your brother. Don't you worry about it. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. I think in many ways Absalom meant well. I, I think when he says to her, keep quiet for now, he's your brother. He may have meant well. But it was still hurtful to Tamar. Families often do that. Don't say anything. This is family. Don't mention anything. Don't report this. Absalom is going to take some matters into his own hands. We'll see that next week as we close out this series on David. But at this point, he wants her to be quiet because of his relationship her relationship to him as her brother. And he says, don't worry about it. I think it's there again. He means well. But to her, it probably sounded like, get over it. Move on. Keep quiet. 
I don't think he meant it like that patronizing. It's okay. Everything will be okay. But that's probably how it sounded to her. So as Tamar lives as a ruined woman in Absalom's house, the whole sorry scene gets worse. That's number seven. Sexual abuse victims are often left undefended. Verse 21, when King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. Rightfully so. But if you're like me, when I read this story, I'm going, he was very angry. Okay, that's, that's a start. What else does he do? Let's see. Surely he does something. I mean, he's angry. That's great. But what does he do? Where is it where it says he went and comforted Tamar? Where does it say that he confronted Amnon? And it's not there. David doesn't do anything. And it's heartbreaking that this one who as a young boy was so brave to protect his father's sheep from bears and lions is not even willing to protect his own daughter from his son. This giant slayer is silent and inactive. He doesn't comfort Tamar. He doesn't confront Amnon. I don't know why, but perhaps David's own past has come back to haunt him. Perhaps David is thinking, what am I going to say to Tamar? When I look in her eyes, a woman who has been sexually assaulted by her brother, I'm going to see the eyes of Bathsheba. The woman I had an affair with got her pregnant, had her husband killed, trying to hide my sin. And what am I going to say to, to Amnon when I go and say, I need to talk to you. You're going to be punished for what you've done to your sister. He's just going to point his finger back in my face and say, Oh, King David, let's talk if you want to talk. Let's talk about Bathsheba. Let's talk about Uriah. Maybe David is feeling the guilt of his past. But his inaction must have spoken volumes and his silence must have spoken volumes to Tamar. Tamar, you make me uncomfortable. Tamar, your story is lewd and shocking. Tamar, your story is shameful. Tamar, we're not going to speak of this. We're going to act like this never happened. We just need to move on. You need to get over it. I want to give you something that is not going to be on the screens because honestly, I've been struggling with this sermon. I'm thinking, God, why did the author of this book spend so much time detailing this sad story? And, and you know, I just, I didn't feel this and didn't see this earlier this week as I sent my outline. So, so this was last night sitting in my recliner, just jotting myself some notes. Why did the author spend so much time detailing this sad story for us? And if the Bible says all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for us to learn from, God, what are you trying to teach us here? I think, first of all, there's a warning to heed. There is a warning to heed. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose the consequence of your sin. Remember when David confessed his affair with Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan said, God's heard your prayer, you're forgiven, but the sword will never leave your house. Your family will never be the same. There are consequences to your sin, David even though God has forgiven you. 
And that's a warning for all of us. This is not to say that you can blame David for Amnon's actions. Amnon and Amnon alone was responsible for his sinful choices. But Amnon certainly found encouragement from the poor example of his dad. Second thing I felt God saying to me last night is there's a voice to hear. There's not only a warning to heed, there's a voice to hear. It's the voice of the victim. It's the voice of Tamar. Apart from death, it can't really get a lot worse for Tamar. Here's a woman who has been deceived and let down and abused and banished and ruined. And no one wanted to listen to her. We must listen to Tamar. The Bible speaks of false allegations against people, like when Joseph was falsely accused of adultery by Potiphar's wife, ended up in prison for years as a result of a crime he never committed. And everybody loves to listen to the voice of the innocent victim, usually when it's a man. But what about Tamar? Do you remember her voice in this story? No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a wicked thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? The reason I'm sharing Tamar's story today is because I want any and every woman, man, boy, or girl, who has been sexually harassed or abused, to know that your story deserves to be heard. What someone else did to you is shameful. You are not shameful. Your grief is our grief. Your shame is undeserved. We cannot ever fully know how you feel. But we can and we will stand with you at the cross of Jesus who suffered with you and suffered for you. And that leads me to the third thing I felt I needed to share with you today, that not only is there a warning to heed and a voice to hear, there is a promise to hold. And this promise is God is in control. Part of what breaks my heart about chapter 13 is God is never mentioned anywhere in the chapter. No one's seeking God's will except poor Tamar. And having done God's will, she still suffers evil. And I don't know if Tamar felt this way, but I know many victims who have. God, why? God, where were you? God, why didn't you do something? God, I feel forsaken by you. And friend, I can't say that your feelings are unfounded. What I can say is when you feel forsaken, you're mistaken. Because God is not finished. 2 Samuel chapter 13 is not the end. Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is the end. Where a greater king than David, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, Jesus Christ himself has promised he will come back one day and he will make all wrong right. And when he comes back, he creates all things new and there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more death. 
All those things will have passed away. In the meantime, all we can do is live by faith in this God of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that we know that all things can work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. There is a promise to hold. God's not finished. So what is our application today? What can we do? First of all, speak up. Speak up. If you're the victim of abuse, I want to say to you, first, you are not alone. Do not believe the lie that you are all alone. I can promise you, you are not alone. Even in the life of this congregation, there are people who say, Tamar's story is my story. Find someone you can trust. Find someone who can help and speak up. And if you've been wronged, call legal authorities. And I want you to also know, if you're a victim, you are more than a statistic to God. He knows you, he loves you, he cares for you, and he grieves with you. For those of us who have not been, but if we see or we suspect abuse, we need to speak up. It is our moral obligation to report suspected or known abuse to legal authorities so that they can handle the investigation Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Secondly, don't blame the victim. By the way, that means if you are the victim, don't blame yourself. It was not your fault. You did not deserve what happened to you. Don't continue to replay in your mind, what if I'd have done this and maybe I should have said that. There was no excuse. You are the victim. And you need to find people who can help you deal with what you're facing. That's why we offer a professional counseling service here at Fort Caroline. Go to our website. Click on the little drop-down menu where it says ministries. Click on that. You can find our information to our professional pastoral counseling service. That's so why we have Celebrate Recovery. So we have life groups. Because you need some support. You don't need to be blamed. And for those of us who are looking at this from the outside in, don't blame the victim. Blame the perpetrator. It's that simple. I don't care who they are, how they're related to you. They are responsible for their actions. And thirdly and finally, look to Jesus. You say, well, you're a preacher. You have to say that. No, I'm saying it because to whom else can we go to find the ultimate hope, help, and healing that we need, not just physically, but deep down on the inside? You say, how does he know? How can he help me? Dear friend, as Jesus Christ hung, stripped naked on a cross, mocked and scorned by all who saw him, he was suffering and bleeding for me and for you. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, that he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, having risen from the dead. And it says, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. 
So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. Look to Jesus. Find the hope and the healing that you need in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, we confess to you that this is a difficult and painful story. But God, we thank you. We thank you for dealing with life as it is. And I pray this morning that each of us will recognize the wicked schemes and tactics of those who would seek to hurt others so that we can be on guard. But most of all, God, I pray that Tamar's story has spoken to someone perhaps who this is close to their story. And they can know that God is with them. God is not finished. One day God makes all right. All that is wrong, right. But in the meantime, he can help us if we will come to him. And Father, I pray that our church would be known as a church that helps people. No matter who they are, what they believe, what their politics are, what their lifestyle is, we'll be a church that helps people by pointing them to Jesus and just by loving them and supporting them. So Father, maybe for the application, somebody needs to reach out and get some help, talk to someone. Maybe others in this room need to be a friend to someone, to be a listening ear. But God, most of all, if there's somebody in this room today who's never received Christ as their Savior, I pray that right now in the stillness of this moment, they would know that he loves them with an everlasting love and he demonstrated his love for them by dying for them on a cross. He didn't come to abuse. He came to be abused for us. And he took our sin and our guilt and our shame and he died our death, but he rose from the dead to give us life and life more abundantly. We thank you for him. And if there's someone today that needs to place their trust in him as Lord and Savior, may right now in this moment they do it in their heart. Saying, dear God, I admit to you I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus is your son who died for me on the cross and who rose from the dead. I confess my sin to him and I confess my faith in him. And I take Jesus at his word when he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.